Welcome to episode 101. Today, Dr. Margarita Espino Calderon joins us to talk about her book, Teaching Reading to English Learners. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Dr. Calderon is one of the most cited and revered scholars of multilingual learners. She has taken her decades of researching working with multilinguals, content teachers, language specialists, and administrators, and has created a framework to help all educators be teachers of language. In this episode, Dr. Calderon will trace back the path that led to this framework and then talk about each of the process. She will also explain her simple seven steps to help teachers teach vocabulary words in just two minutes. The bonus in this episode is that you will be able to see how this framework supports bilingual education, co-teaching, SEL, and even trauma-informed instruction. Get ready to listen to this podcast twice. Now, on to today's podcast. Back with us again is the legendary Margarita, Dr. Margarita Espino Calderon. So we've had the pleasure of hosting Dr. Calderon before on the podcast, and now we're back here today to talk about her other book of many, many books. Teach, uh, today it's going to be upon Teaching Reading to English Learners from Grades 6 to 12, a framework for improving achievement in the content area. So, Dr. Calderon, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, thank you. It's my pleasure. It's always my pleasure to communicate with you, whether on tweet or this or whenever. Uh, thank you so much for everything you do for English learners. Um, can you tell us about a story that has informed your practice? Well, um, I am an English learner. I was born, raised in Juarez, Chihuahua, Mexico, and I didn't immigrate until I was 27 years old. I used to cross the border every day to go to high school and then later to go to the University of Texas in El Paso. And so that was my life, you know, for many years. Then uh, when I graduated, uh, my former high school wanted me to come and teach ESL. And uh, I said, well, I would love to, but I can't, I'm, I'm not even a resident. Uh, and they said, well, you know, we'll just offer you a job. And um, all you have to do is uh, go back to college full time. That way you can work full time. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that'll take care of uh, your visa and everything. So, 
So I, I decided to major in linguistics since I was going to be teaching ESL and I had lived it already. Um, I kind of felt that there would be ways of improving ESL and um, uh, the linguistics, the master's in linguistics really helped. So that's where this whole thing started, you know, living it, uh, but also studying it. Yeah, I know that so many teachers like language specialists are just like you. They they are language learners themselves. They're all ESL learners themselves or English learners themselves. And then they feel this empathy for kids who are going through the same experience that they felt. Right? And and that we loved I love the way you talked about improving ESL, because that's what you've been doing for many, many years with your books, because I'm looking at your bookshelf now, and there are so many. Your most recent book is The Beyond Crisis. Before then, it was having like a panel discussion with the leaders of the field, so the breaking down the wall. And you have so many books, so you have really been one of the key people who have really helped shape, reformed, uh, help us rethink about ESL practice or language instruction practice. So thank you for that. Thank you. It's it's been my my pleasure. Uh, yeah. After going through all these linguistics courses, uh, my professor would start to take me to conferences, and at that time, this this is going to date me. Um, <laughs> at that time, there was this conference called TESOL that had just started. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's where I, I you know, the, that was my beginning, uh, my beginning of uh, getting to know many wonderful colleagues and continuing in this track. So that's how I became interested in this. Um, and then um, because of those conferences, uh, I also got a lot of job offers. <laughs> and, yeah. and one of those was at San Diego State. And at San Diego State, I was coordinator of professional development for Southern California. Wow. And, uh, yeah, and I started what uh, was called the Multi-District Trainer of Trainers Institutes. Uh, we, had, we had lots of good money at that time. And so I would invite Jim Cummins to come from Canada. That was the first time he came to California. Uh, and then uh, Steve Krashen from LA, Russell Stauffer from Delaware, you know, father of LEA, DRTA. And um, so, you know, they helped me to put together a framework that went uh, beyond what uh, ESL was and to think more about uh, teaching reading even within ESL courses because not much had been done about reading at that point in time. So that's how it kind of, um, you know, began and, and, uh, and it was anchored by having these wonderful colleagues share their knowledge and then having all these teachers from Southern California come and also participate in, in trying to develop a, a framework for this. While I was doing this, what I discovered was that uh, if 
ESL teachers were to go beyond just teaching language and reading, there had to be content. Yes. And so, yeah. And so that led me to start my doctoral program at Claremont Graduate School. And there I majored in multicultural education, but I decided to also go to the business uh, school and take some courses in organizational development. Because I figured, you know, we need professional development, but not just for ESL teachers, right? We need to get everybody involved. This is not just an ESL teacher responsibility anymore. And, um, and that's when um, I decided to write this um, nasty letter to uh, Robert Slavin at Johns Hopkins. <laughs> I said, you're always writing about how cooperative learning is so wonderful for everybody, but you never write about in how wonderful it is for English learners. Right. He wrote back. <laughs> he wrote back. I was so embarrassed, but he <laughs> wrote back. <laughs> and he said, well, I'll tell you what, uh, why don't we write a proposal and uh, see if we can create a center for not just English learners, but all the students that are placed at risk in schools. And so that led me to the reading part of this wow. and to get teachers, all teachers involved in teaching language literacy and content. So you had a very interesting pathway from a very opinionated email to a proposal and to now starting an institute. So would you tell us about, you know, I feel like I want to go before we talk about the book. You have um, your, I love listening to your pathway because from uh, attending conferences to now uh, being keynotes at so many conferences to writing all these books to creating centers and institutes I really do mean it. You are one of the shining, brightest shining stars of our field that has really helped us after these all these decades. What have you realized about working with uh, English learners that you wish you knew before? Oh, definitely. I wish I had known when I was teaching ESL <laughs> centuries ago oh. that uh, how cooperative learning um, not only helps develop language, but also literacy, collegiality, and what we now know as uh, CEL, social emotional learning. I didn't know it was called CEL at that time, but I was just trying to get kids to talk to each other, to respect each other, if we were going to get work done. And uh, so, that's something that now I look back and, and I think, well, there were a lot of pieces that came together and that are still coming together, especially now that uh, as we provide training to schools, we try to integrate language, literacy, literacy, I mean, reading and writing and um, content but we've also added social emotional learning within our cooperative learning structures. We've always uh, had cooperative learning in our PD, but now we're emphasizing 
Okay, so this is the competency that you can teach during vocabulary instruction. This is the other sales strategy you can teach during partner reading. And so we're still working at it, but we're seeing some wonderful results. When you talked about collaborative learning, I thought about Vygotsky, and he said, all learning is social, right? And then I think Sam Bennett said, the person who is talking is doing the thinking, and the person doing the thinking is doing the learning. And so that goes back to your talk about collaborative learning. Can you talk about that in reading and what um, the other uh, researcher proposed to you? And what did you find about collaborative learning and, re and reading with multilinguals? Mm -hmm. Well, um, Bob Slavin, who later became my boss, of course, he said, you know, I was happy teaching bilingual courses at uh, University of California, Santa Barbara. And then he calls and he says, okay, so we have this grant. Um, you wanna come and um, work with us at Johns Hopkins? And I said, well, let me think about it for a whole second. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, uh, I, you know, he, he passed this away this year. But he will always be in my heart and in my mind. He was the, one of the greatest mentors in my life. And I learned so much from him because he was the reading guru and cooperative learning guru. Uh, if you go back and look for cooperative learning, you'll see that he was writing about it in the 70s. And uh, he tried different um, uh, studies. Everything was empirical. And so he taught me that, you know, if you're going to put something out there, it has to be empirically tested. Yes. And, uh, and, and so that's where I started studying more in-depth uh, reading for English learners and what that might look like. And again, because we have in this other university, we had tons of money, uh, I was able to do a five-year empirical study at elementary schools where we tested uh, certain reading programs for ELLs and compared them to what the district had and other programs that were uh, reading series, reading programs. And of course, our students came out on top. Uh, it, it was a, a great study. It's now in the what work works clearinghouse. It's in the what works clearinghouse because we had uh, great results. Uh, it's evidence-based uh, and, um, and that's where I tested different types of reading for English learners. And as you mentioned, uh, Vygotsky and, and the social aspect of learning. Yes. Yeah, that was key. That was key because we uh, looked at uh, reading in pairs, uh, partner reading, where the students read alternating sentences. They alternate sentences, they read a paragraph, and then they co-construct a summary of what they read. That's where the magic happens. That's where it happens because 
yes, they have to struggle. They, they have to work things out, the concept, the language. And uh, this is what really works for the kids because they have a buddy. They have someone to test their ideas, someone who's going to forgive them for their mistakes, the language mistakes, their thinking. Uh, this is where learning takes place, right? In, in the context of others. And so that's, that was one of the basic keys of that five-year study. And the study was in bilingual uh, dual language schools. So we saw it working in English, we saw it working in Spanish, and it was just terrific. Yeah, what I, what I, what I want to say about what you just shared is that so many of the things that are recommended for literacy practices are, are based upon empirical work with uh, native speakers or fluent speakers. And yet, they are try when we apply them to uh, English learners, they don't really work. And so, I appreciate the work that you do and other your other colleagues by looking at by creating research that looks at what uh, multilinguals can do, what ELs can do. And so, that makes it really relevant to our field because because it's different contexts. Right. Correct. Uh, and unfortunately, it's still happening. You know, the, there's these programs and uh, for reading and for writing, and uh, they try to uh, implement them in uh, dual language classrooms or ESL classrooms. It, it, they don't work. They don't work. Uh, so the the next chapter of my life was when um, the Carnegie Corporation of New York. Uh, read about my study in elementary school. So they said, oh, would you like to do a study in secondary schools now? <laughs> and I said, yes, uh, but I want this study to be a longitudinal study. I want to do experimental control schools and classrooms. I want different settings. I want New York. I want Hawaii. Are you willing to do that? <laughs> And they said, yes, <laughs> yeah. Um, so that was uh, what we now call Excel, Expediting Comprehension for English Language Learners. That was for, for content teachers in middle and high schools. Of course, ESL teachers were also working with the content teachers, but it was developed uh, under the um, Carnegie's request to find a professional development program. And what they meant by find is to develop a professional de development program that addresses the needs of core content teachers. Uh, yeah, you know, core content teachers want to help. They want to know what to do for the English learners in their classrooms. And so uh, this, this um, testing was in conjunction, in cooperation with core content teachers. Uh, I moved to New York so that my associates, my research assistants, and I could be embedded in the schools, in the middle schools and high schools. And we were literally 
in those classrooms for three years testing components. So it's called components testing. You know, we, we have a, a, a research-based program, let's say for vocabulary. You know, someone has uh, invented five steps to teach vocabulary. Fine, we take those five steps, we test them in classrooms, and then that's when we start deleting or adding until we find what really works. And so we did that. We did that for vocabulary, for reading, for writing, until we had a whole framework of uh, things that uh, really work not only in New York City, but in Hawaii as well, of course. <laughs> I have to go and test over there <laughs> as well. Uh, and, um, and so that's how this, this framework was was formed and uh, developed and uh, where we continue to implement it throughout the country, throughout the countries. Uh, we, we were even in Saudi Arabia before, you know, before this whole debacle, uh, but um, South America, Mexico, uh, many places that we've been implementing. And in China, I was, uh, I, I, we were in uh, Nanning and it was just um, a, a fabulous experience. So, uh, I, you know, it's, it's gone really well. And, and we continue to test it. So another five years of my life, I've had all these five years, right? And <laughs> that's your lucky number. <laughs> it's my lucky number. Um, and so uh, afterwards, uh, we have um, we received this grant from OELA, a Title III grant, to um, implement uh, Excel school-wide to train schools instead of just groups of teachers. Uh, and so that is uh, ending and um, reports are being written, but uh, it, it's, it's been um, perhaps the most effective and efficient way of training core content teachers, CSL teachers, special ed teachers, and most of all, administrators, principals, counselors, yes. They, yeah, uh, they had to attend. And uh, the teachers are very grateful that their administrators were with them through all these workshops, that uh, we invited administrators and coaches, the instructional coaches, site-based or district coaches, to go with us into the classroom, observe and, um, and coach the teachers afterwards. And so they, they uh, would shadow us and uh, learn how to use the observation protocols uh, for, you know, are they teaching vocabulary using the seven steps? Uh, where do the students need more help? And, and so um, they, they learn how to observe in ELL classrooms because many times uh, that was, that's the question we were getting from administrators as well. Uh, how do I observe in you know, classrooms? I, I don't know what to look for. Uh, and so we um, develop, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> you, you can cut that one out. <laughs> uh, 
So we developed an observation protocol and tested it for validity and reliability. Um, and uh, now we have that observation protocol that we use everywhere uh, when we coach the teachers. I think administrators are so important. I love that you created this for teachers initially. So that's the grassroots, right? We have to make something practical for teachers, but then it has to be supported as a system, as an ecosystem. And that's where we bring the counselors in. That's where we bring the principals in because they make the decisions that really impact teachers. They make the schedules. They think about the resources, the allocations of, of, of money and funds. So. Thank you for talking about uh, the administrator part. It's really a school, a whole school approach. Can you now talk about your book a little bit? Like, let's talk about uh, your framework. How do we get kids to read? To be, how do we help content teachers be teachers of reading? Mm -hmm. uh, yes. Uh, well, it starts with um, what was interesting is that we soon found out that it's not just teaching reading. Yes. Right. Yes. We have to backtrack and say, oops, uh, they really need to know the words, <laughs> right? <laughs> they need to know uh, what it means when they're reading. And that's when we added vocabulary. Yes. So whereas we, we felt very comfortable about the partner reading, we, like I said, we started with vocabulary. So the framework is pre-teaching, five words with the seven steps that are in the books and core content teachers can pre-teach those five words in 10 minutes only. Yeah, so it's, it's fast enough. They don't uh, worry about not covering their, their subject because it's only 10 minutes. Then uh, they can move into the objectives, uh, the content objectives, the language objectives, because now content teachers also have to mention language objectives, right? Thanks to Lita. <laughs> Thanks to my colleague like Margo. <laughs> Got Liam, yeah. And, and so now all core content teachers uh, set the context for learning whatever it is that the students are going to read and learn afterwards, uh, the teachers will model some critical comprehension strategies that they need for a particular text. They need to model how text features help with reading comprehension. And then the text structures, model a text structure. If it's a cause and effect type of text, then they need to model with a little paragraph or a sentence. How do we look for cause and effect? Where's the cause? Where's the effect? And so the teachers think aloud um, and, and uh, model how to go about doing that before they, they start to read with their partner. So that was the next step. Then the partner reading, uh, including the peer summaries partner reading or, or reading with a partner is not an end all. Uh, it, as we discussed before, it has to include those summaries, verbal summaries, not written summaries, because when they're, when they're reading and they're writing on the margin, 
it stays in the margin. Yeah, it doesn't really trickle up to the brain. It just stays right there. Whereas if they're articulating, and this is what Vygotsky was all about, you've got to articulate. You've got to uh, let all those ideas out and test the ideas with someone else, right? If we're not testing ideas, if we're not getting feedback on whatever it is that we're saying, we're not really moving forward. We're not learning. And so this was a big part of that. After the peer summaries, then the teacher can um, maybe highlight some additional words that uh, he or she heard that they were still struggling with uh, and maybe do a little more depth of um, uh, knowledge about word power. And this is where students can, can do some writing. They can uh, write some of those words or, or do some uh, journal pieces. But that has to be followed by class debriefings and class discussions. We were back to oral language again. Uh, I think, you know, that's the important piece. It's oral language, the vocabulary, those seven steps of vocabulary only take two minutes, but it's one minute for teacher to give instructions. And then the students in pairs have to use the words for a whole minute in sentences. So there's there's conversation, there's articulation, there's interaction throughout all the different steps. Um, but that's only up to step six. Step seven is more cooperative learning strategies to anchor language, literacy, and knowledge. The reason why the students are reading is to learn the content, right? Reading is for the purpose of learning content. Yeah, they're not going to learn content and remember it if somebody else is reading to them. They need to read it and discuss it. So after they finish um, some more cooperative learning strategies, then they write questions. Students do not answer questions all the time. In fact, it's easy sometimes to answer those book questions or worksheet questions, but think of what the students have to use in their repertoires and in their thinking to formulate questions. So we asked the students after they finish reading a text to formulate questions, not to answer questions, but to formulate questions. And, and that's a great test for teachers to use. It, it's, uh, I think you can see how throughout this cycle, there's a lot of performance assessments. Yes. It's authentic assessment. And especially with formulating questions, because that tells us if, they're, if they learn the language, if they know the content, if they have picked up, picked up some uh, new sentence structures, and that uh, everything is coming together for them. Afterwards, they're, um, and now that they have all this knowledge and words and, and sentence structures, uh, then um, they, we can start with writing. Uh, it's taken quite a bit of 
time to get to the writing for the purpose of letting the students know that they really have something to write. And that they have the content, they have the words, they have the sentences, and now they can write a draft. And the draft is only a draft. It's to get the ideas out. And this is where, um, this is where translanguaging comes in very handy. Uh, some students, because they do this in teams and they do it in what we call a write around. So they're, they're passing these papers, four papers at a time are coming around. And after I finish writing on one, here comes another one. I have to, add, I have to read what's there, add to it, pass it on. I get another one. And so with that type of uh, a draft, a very quick draft, they used to worry about, uh, oh, but I have to write perfect English or how do you say this word? And they would get stuck. <laughs> they, would, they would get stuck. And then here's all these other students, hurry up, hurry up, andale, andale, andale. And so uh, <laughs> this is when we say, hey, use whatever language you want to use. Just write. Because after the draft, we have revision and we have, we have editing. So those are strategies that our teachers have loved because they have, the kids have a draft. They can come back to that draft. They have these long pieces that they've written. Now they can go back and, and fix that uh, word in Spanish that they couldn't remember in English or maybe a whole sentence. Uh, and so now they can revise the sentences but then they also edit. They edit for uh, punctuation. They edit for um, um, capital, capitalization. Uh, maybe they used uh, very easy words, tier one words. And, and so now the teacher says, all right, look for the tier one words, circle your tier one words and change them to tier two, more sophisticated language. Content, right, more sophisticated. And then they'll add tier three, which is content specific language, which the content teachers would really love. Yes, and be sure you have your tier three words, because if you're writing about climate, I want to see all those words you've learned about climate. But I want to see all those uh, fancy words like furthermore, uh, moreover, and then a lot of nice connectors and that's where the editing uh, comes in so that in a nutshell that's it but there's so much more it takes us uh, 18 to 24 hours virtually to do the training well i feel like though you you just explained it very extensively i felt like i just had a master's education in literacy and language acquisition right there because really you've taken concepts of uh vocabulary development you've taken concepts of uh, uh, constructivism you've taken concepts of uh, writing like uh, the the word level sentence level discourse level right? you've taken uh, PSYOP you've added together. So I've really, I feel like I just listened to a master's uh, version or like getting my master's degree in, in that. 
in uh, language acquisition with within specifically content area uh, instruction. So that was so impressive. And I know when I look at this process, I wrote uh, it's it, it helps teachers move from being a stage a sage on the stage to being a guide on the side. And that's because we help kids learn by doing. So they're learning content instead of us telling them the content. And then as they're learning the content, they're actually using the language. And that's where language and content are merged together. Because I know content teachers will say, I am not an English teacher. I didn't come into this profession to be an English teacher. And all I think what you're saying is you don't have to be an English teacher like the way you think. But you have to teach how to read in your content area. You have to teach how to speak in your content area. You have to uh, teach how to write in your content area. I love that summary. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so what did you, what after you've shared this for so many years with teachers, how have teachers responded or what areas do you think teachers, you want to really emphasize for teachers? I, I would like to emphasize for all teachers that um, uh, it really, um, you know, this is so, so overused, but it really takes a village. Uh, teachers need to work together. We, we can't have uh, uh, just the math teachers doing this in a school. Uh, the science, the uh, um, engineering, PE teachers actually use these strategies in the gym, <laughs> which is fantastic. But every single teacher uh, can use these strategies. And in order to do that, they need to do a, a lot of exchanging and uh, for instance, if they're going to be teaching a lot of tier two words, they can get together in their TLCs, we call them teachers learning communities, and then decide, okay, uh, here's some tier two words from my text. What do you have in your text? And so there's a lot of exchanges that way. Um, when it comes to co-teaching, the teachers have discovered that uh, this is a much better way for co-teachers to cooperate. Yes. Because, yeah, can you see it? The yeah. ESL teacher pre-teaches the five words. The content teacher comes and does the objectives, uh, some modeling. ESL comes back and does something else. So it's all woven in and out, in and out. The ESL teacher is not in a little corner over there with uh, some of the students, or uh, you know, it it just um, they they dance the same dance. You can't tell the dancer from the dance. I've observed uh, um, teachers co-teaching. And it's difficult to tell which is the ESL and which is a content teacher because they're both so skilled in, in what they do and it's easy for them to plan. It has reduced the time for planning because they do have the same language. I mean, I just, when you said that, it was like a light bulb moment for me because I saw, I looked at the framework and I was like, that's right. 
they, there are things that the, that the uh, ESOL teacher can do. There are things that the content teachers can do. There are things that both of them can do at the same time. And this, your framework, your process really supports the different models of co-teaching. So maybe a small group, of, uh, one teacher can take a small group of students and another teacher can take another small group of students, right? And then I can see them doing stations with this. I can see teachers doing, um, one teacher is leading the instruction, but that might not, it might not be the content teacher because it might be the ESOL teacher teaching the vocabulary. And it might be the ESOL mm -hmm. teacher teaching the writing part. So it, I can really see it really supporting co-teaching. And now they have a framework. Because they have a framework, they go into co-planning and it's much more efficient and effective. I know that you are very well cited for your seven steps for vocabulary. Would you, I know like I don't, I think that's why I wanna end this podcast. Can you talk to us about the seven steps for vocabulary? Mm-hmm, sure. Um, they're a little different from um, uh, Marzano's and others' uh, steps. Um, in fact, you know, we started this study way back in 05. Uh, and um, it starts with step number one, which is the teacher says the word or a phrase, because it's easier to teach phrases uh, from the text. All the words have to come from the text. There's no lists or anything. It has whatever the students are about to read. So the teacher starts out with one word or phrase and asks the students to repeat it three times. It's important that the students repeat it because uh, otherwise the pronunciation or uh, repeating also helps uh, the memory. It's sort of a mnemonic device. And then um, in step number two, the teacher takes the whole sentence from the text where the word is found, where the word is nested, so that when the students start to read and they see the whole sentence, they remember it. It helps them to recall the meaning. And so that's step number two. Step number three, the teacher gives the students the dictionary definition. Uh, we don't ask the students, what do you think it means? No, you can imagine what's going to happen there. <laughs> if the teacher only has one minute to do the first five steps, it has to go very quickly. And so step number three, the teacher gives the students the dictionary definition for the purpose of having students listen to academic language. They need to hear it. Not that they're going to memorize it, especially the newcomers. And sometimes we tell the teachers of newcomers, no, you don't have to give them the dictionary definition, but it's good to get them used to academic language. And so that's why we have the dictionary definition there. Step number four is to kind of help because uh, the dictionary definitions sometimes are, are more difficult than the word itself. And so step number four is to give the students a student-friendly definition. Yes. Or an example. You know, we can give them an example, something from our own experiences as teachers, just so that they really understand the word since they're going to be using it 
pretty soon. And then step number five, that's where the teachers give a little bit of information about the word. For instance, is it a polysemous word? And the kids love the word polysemous, multiple meaning. Is it a multiple meaning word? And you know, that sometimes they just say poly <laughs> because they can't say the whole word, but they love the word. Oh, teacher, me, poly, this is poly. <laughs> yes, it's a polysemous word. Uh, or is it a cognate? And this is where they say it's a cognate. I don't speak very much Spanish, but I think it's a cognate. And I think it's pronounced like this. And, uh, you know, efecto, efecto, uh, effect. Yeah, it's probably efecto. But the teacher's doing a think aloud. We don't want the kids to, to say anything from steps one through five. Otherwise, they're going to take up teacher's time. That's right. Right? And the teacher only has one minute, so it has to go very quick. Then step number six is the most important one of all. This is where students, let's say you and I were students, um, we are going to practice using the word in a sentence frame or a sentence starter that the teacher gives us. Uh, I always like to use the example of, um, uh, you know, the teacher will say, say one has had a big effect in your life recently. And so students, I want you to ping pong back and forth with your buddy for one whole minute and tell each other about five or six different things that have had an impact on your life recently, either an impact or effect, either one, but let's say um, effect. So I would start out by saying, ah, oh, not going to a restaurant has had a big effect on my life. And then you would give a, a, an example with effect, right? An effect. A, give me a, one. A big effect on my life is being vaccinated in America with the Pfizer vaccine. That is wonderful. Me, me too. Uh, that had a big effect on me because now I can visit my friends. And so we keep going back and forth, back and forth for a whole minute for a whole minute and uh, the teacher is listening. The teachers are monitoring, especially when you have co-teachers, they're monitoring the students and listening to see if they have, uh, if they really understood the word. Then step number seven is perhaps uh, one of the most important ones too. We call it the accountability step mm. because the teacher will remain, remind the students that they have to use this word during their partner summaries and in their writing. And um, they need to make sure that they remember this word because they need to use it and when they need to use it. So that's the accountability step. And those seven steps have uh, proven to be quite effective not just because it only takes two minutes to teach one word versus some of those other strategies that, you know, take up to 20 minutes or, or, or maybe even a couple of days to teach a word. It's too much. Content teachers cannot do that. They can't handle it. No. So it has to be brisk and um, a quick and yeah. 
I love the low risk. I wrote down the words as I was listening to you. I wrote down the words low risk opportunities to engage, right? Because your five steps are just so easy. They make it feel. They make kids feel like they're not going to be stressed by practicing. And then your whole process of learning content through reading is so low stress because it's so collaborative as well. And so you make it just so practical and efficient for teachers. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, took a few years, but we finally got it. <laughs> and, and, and it's okay that it took a few years because you really wanted to refine it, right? You were in classes, you said, okay, this is not working, let's take it out. Okay, let's add this in, let's test it. Oh yes, it is working, let's keep it in. And you were working with multilinguals and not just uh, the most fluent speakers. You were working with the audience that we were trying to work with, right? That's so important. Mm -hmm. I want, mm -hmm. You're also known for uh, bilingualism and, the, and as an expert of bilingual education. Can you talk about bilingual education in as it relates to the, this process? Sure. Um, when, um, when we did the first study, uh, the five year, the first five years, uh, there was a, a, another, a simultaneous five year study going on at the same time. Uh, the first study was called the BSTERC, Bilingual Cooperative Integrated Reading and Composition. And that's where we began to integrate cooperative learning, reading, writing, uh, and uh, in, in two languages. Uh, but then uh, we also started another study in 50-50 um, uh, bilingual program at that time. And 50-50 meant that uh, these schools were, um, uh, had majority uh, English speakers and, and Spanish speakers, of course. And this was in El Paso, Texas. So, so you get, you know, complete bilingual schools, <laughs> which is wonderful. And that's how we could do 50-50. So every day we would have two Anglophones sit together with two Spanish speakers in teams, in cooperative teams. Yeah. So when it was time for English, guess who was the most... Uh, I guess, uh, you know, going back to uh, Bogotsky, who had the greatest competencies, but then when it was time to um, learn in Spanish, then it shifted, right? It shifted, the knowledge base shifted. So that developed great respect for one another across cultures. Uh, there were African-American students there. There, there were, of course, um, white students, but then there were also students from, from other cultures and, uh, and the majority were, were Spanish speakers. So that showed not only that cooperative learning works extremely well, but also that the teachers had the tools to move the students very quickly from one language to the other. By the time they finished fifth grade, those kids were bilingual, bicultural, <laughs> by, almost biracial, because they could really identify with each other. Uh, and it, it, it was 
beautiful. So from that study, I learned that um, you can teach, you can have high expectations for all students. You can have rigorous instruction in both languages. You can start teaching English from K, Spanish from K, and the kids can handle both languages at the same time. Yeah, you might have visited France in your worldly travels, but in France, you have two-year-olds. We went to the crèche, we went to visit uh, preschools, and uh, two-year-olds uh, can speak French, German, you know, whatever, and they continue being bilingual, trilingual. It's not the kids. It's, it's not the kids. Yeah, and um, we just finished four weeks of doing this only in Spanish for New York City schools. Yeah, I'm back with, I love New York. I love their schools. And we had three elementary schools. The principals wanted their teachers, their Spanish uh, component, some, uh, yeah, some two schools had um, bilingual teachers, but the other two had teachers who only taught in Spanish and uh, the other, and then they had a co-teacher of English. But the principals wanted their teachers to listen to more academic Spanish. And so uh, my dear sister and I <laughs> team up for those and we, um, we worked with them. We did Excel, which in Spanish is called Acelera. It means to Excel. Uh, we did Acelera totalmente en español, every single session, so that the teachers could uh, practice uh, more academic Spanish, also pick up some strategies for teaching Spanish. Uh, and it, it was delightful. It was delightful. So yes, it does work uh -huh, in bilingual settings. And now combining it with co-teaching, I think sometimes ESO teachers who are from marginalized backgrounds are often marginalized in the co-teaching relationship. But with this model, they're now elevated to an equal status as an equal designer of education. Right. So it's not just like we're not saying, no, no, you can't speak Spanish with using this program. It's saying, yes, use Spanish. We're in a bilingual program. And now the ESO teacher who is uh, from a Latin uh, who speaks Spanish can now use Spanish to help kids learn. Yes. Right. Uh huh. Yes. It's the same routine, the same structure. It helps the students because they they don't have to try to guess, oh, what is this teacher going to do now? They know exactly what's going to happen. Right, right. In, in uh, high school, they go from algebra to history, and they know that, okay, first 10 minutes, I'm going to learn five words. <laughs> it, it, now you're speaking another, I think you're addressing another concept, which is trauma-informed. I learned that in trauma-informed education, kids really need stability and consistency. And so really this framework is offering that. You're, this framework is touch, touching on so, so many things from language development to teaching content to SEL, to trauma-informed education, to bilingual education. So I'm just so 
And I'm so impressed by this process. And the book, this is why teachers should get the book. And also invite you to come to the school district and to, to provide professional development. I, I, when I look on Twitter, I see people say just positive things about your work, mm -hmm. workshops and webinars. Thank you. Thank you so much. Let's end the podcast like we always do with traffic light teaching. Wait, is there anything else that I didn't get to ask you before we end? Um, no, I don't think so. I think um, it just the, the fact that we can do this um, even district wide is very promising. Yes, uh, more and more districts are interested in, in uh, doing this district wide. Uh, not that all schools are going to sign up immediately, <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, they see the benefits of uh, doing this as a whole school approach. I think you're touching on another concept, like collective teacher efficacy from Dr. John Hattie. You really are saying like when, if we know that job and better professional learning is such a wonderful way to develop uh, our skills. So now you have schools coming together or teachers coming together in a school and saying, hey, how are you doing this? How are you doing that? Or like, let's look at this process. How are you doing that process of kids summarizing? How are you doing this process of the five steps, seven steps for vocabulary? So really st teachers are coming together to refine each other's uh, practice with this model. So you're developing a collective belief that their, if their work can actually have an impact on student learning. Yes, and that's when we see um, accelerated learning. The, the more the merrier, the more teachers are involved, the more schools that are involved, uh, the faster the learning takes place. Right, right. Because so let's end with um, traffic light teaching. Red light is something that you ask teachers to stop doing in terms of this process. Yellow light is something that you ask teachers to start doing. Like we get to yellow light, we start to slow down. And then the green light is something that you ask teachers to keep on doing. So a red light would be to um, stop doing those things that you know in your heart don't really work yes. or, or take up too much time. <laughs> I can't say it any clearer. Uh, we know in our hearts what's working and not working. And, um, you know, this is a wonderful opportunity for us to stop looking back and, and start um, thinking about what we can do yes. from now on. Yes. And I think that's the yellow light. You know, we're in this space right now. It's a yellow light, yes. right? We're pausing uh, before we get going again. Yes. And, and it's a wonderful opportunity to think of, all right, there were some really good things that I'm going to bring forward, but I realized that I really need to look at this other part, right? And that's where the green light comes in. The green light is, we have evidence-based instructional models for ESL teachers, for core content teachers, for school-wide implementation, for co-teaching, 
um, uh, you know, these these strategies also work with parents. We actually, yeah, vocabulary, those seven steps, the parents love it. Uh, and, and so we know what works. It, it's just a matter of getting um, the, the administration, the district administration, the school administration to realize that we need to do this as a whole school. Right. We cannot leave all of this up to that one lonely ESL teacher. <laughs> no, no, there, there's too many English learners now that need help. And if the schools are going to um, get out of debt, <laughs> get out of low performing, <laughs> then uh, they need to pay more attention to multilingual learners and uh, the way to address their needs, the diversity of their needs, is to begin to look at uh, what is evidence-based, what has been empirically tested, and how we can get everyone in the school to work together to, to move forward. Well, Dr. Esbino Cadoron, it has been, again, a pleasure to host you and to share your decades worth of research and make sharing the such practical of practical framework to help teachers help all students. So thank you so much for your work. And thank you. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. And um, I could chat with you forever. You're so wonderful to talk with. And I appreciate everything that you do for English learners, for bilingual education, for ESL, for everybody. Thank you on behalf of the field. Oh, you're making me blush. Thank you. Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field. I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things that worked and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now onto our recap. I love this episode with Dr. Calderon. She provided such a practical framework for teachers to be a, a teacher of language. It cannot be on the shoulders of language specialists to teach academic language because content teachers need to use language to engage and content-specific tasks. Most importantly, I came to this conversation thinking that I'll be talking about reading, but I left seeing how one framework can do so many things. The most important thing about this framework is that it provides opportunities for teachers to collaborate on behalf of multilinguals. Dr. Calderon's process clearly lends itself to co-teaching, but it also lends itself to people in the same department, sharing ways that they are implementing the framework. This is one of those episodes that you can listen to again and again and take copious notes and it has been like a masterclass with a living master herself. So we end this culturally responsive instruction series by going to another one, which is 
Literacy, and Language Development. You'll hear experts such as Dr. Diane Lapp, Carol Jago, Penny Kittle, Kelly Bowswell, Jennifer Cervallo, and Trevor McKenzie. In the next episode specifically, we'll meet with Dr. Diane Lapp to talk about text complexity. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Never